This is the Data Privacy Detective 2023. It was a year of major developments in the world of data privacy. New standardization, uh, new statutes and regulations uh, in the United States, record fines in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, a new height left uh, achieved in hacks and data theft and identity theft and and AI really burst onto the scene as a hot topic. And to look at some of the things that happened at the end of 2023, I have with me today my good friends and monthly commentators, Yugo Nagashima and Brian St. Amore. They're both attorneys at Frost Brown Todd, a large coast-to-coast business law firm in the United States, and both have deep expertise in data privacy and security. Brian Hugo, happy 2024. Happy 2024, Joe. Joe, excited to be here again as we kick off 2024. Well, this will get released first week of January. We're looking back at the end of the year. And let's start with AI. Boy, what a hot topic. And uh, maybe the stock market was driven by it, everything else. Hugo, what happened in the European Union in December about AI? Well, it is uh, it is a historical moment on December 9th. The European Union finalized the preliminary. So it's it's not fully complete yet, but the preliminary agreement on the Artificial Intelligence Act, AI Act. Uh, and it's a law that puts forth a framework for the sales and use of AI in the European Union. Again, well, that's a big deal. Now, in lead. general, what does it uh, cover and what does it regulate? So it governs AI systems that are placed on the market. Uh, or put into service in the EU, just like the GDPR with you know personal data in the EU. Uh, but there are three exceptions um, to AI systems. One, if it's a military purpose or defense and national security purpose, um, it's exempt. Uh, AI developed and used for scientific research is exempt. And free open source AI systems and components uh, are also exempt. But then there's an exemption to the exemption, which means it goes back into the governance of an AI act if it's it has to do with foundational models. Foundational models. Well, is there any obligation for those who sell or use an AI system? So it depends on categories, which I will talk next, but it generally uh and very at a very high level, it it generally requires transparency, safeguards. And it also has penalties for non-compliance of up to 35 million euros or 7% of a company's global revenue. Again, very That's similar serious. to the GDPR. Of, of global revenue. Okay, go ahead. Uh, the AI Act is also, it's unique. And I think this is the part I was mentioning earlier. Uh, there's a risk-based approach in how the obligations for you know different risk-level systems will have different obligations and different uses. Well, what, risks, now they come in diff- different stripes. What are the categories of risks? In large part, there's four. There's the unacceptable risk category or the prohibited risk category. High risk category, limited risk, or what's called general AI category. And then there's the low risk category. Well, what, what are these? What are the unacceptable risks under the AI Act? So these are AI systems that the AI Act considers would, threat, uh, would be a threat to people, and it's it's banned. And here are some of the examples. There's four in particular. Uh, A cognitive behavioral manipulation of people or specific vulnerable groups. The easiest example the EU gives us is 
a toy that encourages a child to take dangerous behaviors. Um, if you remember, there was like a, um, uh, what is it? One, one of those um, home home AI uh, speakers that would do make kids do crazy things. Uh, that would be an example. The next one well, is- We'll see how BB guns do and uh, all sorts of things. Interesting. What else? Social scoring systems. As you know, um, a certain part of the country already implements social scoring systems, but the EU says no. And this, I think this is a great thing. AI systems that classify people based on behavioral or socioeconomic status or personal characteristic. And this personal characteristic is, I think, very important, even to us in the United States. It's political, religious, philosophical beliefs, sexual orientation. For those who listen to a lot of the privacy podcasts, it's what we call sensitive personal information. Continuing on, there's also biometric identification and categorization systems. Uh, biometrics, as you know, Brian loves biometrics, and I'm sure he's going to talk about it again. That's that's a that's a high risk, uh, that's an unacceptable risk category. And finally, real time and remote biometric identification systems, such as facial recognition, is also considered unaccept the unacceptable risk category. Okay, then the next one down the list is still high risk, and it's called high risk. So what's what's that about? That's right, Joe. The high risk category is it's not unacceptable, but it's just high risk. And as you can imagine, these are systems that will cause significant potential harm to people. Uh, the first one thing that came, comes to my mind is health. So, you know, health information, safety, uh, you know, basic fundamental rights, environment, democracy and the rule of law is included too. So it, it reflects the times because, you know, covering democracy and the rule of law with AI is something that's very new. Uh, two example. Examples from this category, AI systems that are used in products falling into EU's product safety legislation, such as toys, aviation, cars, medical devices, and lifts. So you would have to compare the AI Act and the uh, safety legislation to know which categories fall into the products. Uh, and AI systems falling to specific areas of technology, such as critical infrastructure, education and vocational training, uh, employment work management, access to essential private or public services and benefits, law enforcement, migration, asylum, and border management, and assistance in the legal interpretation and application of law. Again, the last one, right? It goes to the rule of law and then democracy, I think, more. So EU is taking a very broad framework on the issue of high-risk systems. And then with a high-risk system, what do you have to do under the law? they would have to go through an assessment before going to market with these products. That's, and of course, there's also the transparency requirements, but that is one of the additional obligations. Okay. Next, we have limited risk or general purpose systems. What, uh, tell us what that is. So this is the ones that you would think of as uh, the AI that came onto the stage this year. A generative AI, open uh OpenAI's ChatGPT would be a great example. And with these systems, uh, there's a transparency requirement where you have to explain um, that you're disclosing the content was generated by an AI. There's a designing of the model to prevent any illegal content. And you know that could be from IP or anything that doesn't have consent uh, from users, uh, per persons. And third, publishing summaries of the copyright data used for the training, because there's, again, a lot of IP issues involved. So there are risks, but they are certainly, uh, and then next is limited risk categories. Uh, that seems to be the, the least risky, but what, what, what does that cover? 
So this is interesting. I The name really doesn't reflect it, but they're saying these are AI systems that generate or mani- manipulate an image, audio, video content like deep fakes. And all that's required for these type of systems is allowing the user to make informed decisions on how to use the system. So I don't know why it's it's located in such a low category, but that's what they consider the limited risk AI. Well, as you said, that's preliminary. So what happens next? So next step is the EU Parliament and Council. Anyone who understands how they vote on these things, you have to have both the Parliament and Council formally adopt AI Act, and then uh, it'll go into effect. Or then I think there's further process, but that's the next step. Fascinating. Brian, any comment or question? So you go looking into your crystal ball, what do you think the United States is going to do in this this area? It is very hard to say. Uh, And I will be super honest, I don't know. But if I were to read the tea leaves or take a guess, I would say this risk-based approach is, if it's like the GDPR, right? If the AI Act becomes like the GDPR, uh, the U.S. would adopt something similar, but change it a little bit. But we don't know that yet um, because AI is industry dr- driven. The U.S. might go a completely different way. And as we know, the Biden administration has published an executive order, uh, which says, hey, let's research uh, generative AI, AI in general. So the conclusions from the agencies may be drastically different. And of course, Congress can act completely differently from the uh, from the agencies. So it is hard to tell, uh, and it's, it will just we'll have to see what kind of actions get taken in twenty twenty four. Very interesting, and we'll come back to this regularly, and I'm sure because AI, uh, it's not like it's going to be finished tomorrow morning. <laughs> it'll go on, and maybe it'll be ahead of the law or behind the law, but at least we know what Europe's doing. Thank you, thank you very much. Well, let's let's turn to another aspect of AI, uh, and that that turns us uh, to the United States and. Uh, Illinois again. Brian, what's happened recently? Yeah, so, you know, interestingly, you know, yet another kind of unique development related to the Illinois BIPPO, this one a little more tangentially than directly. Now, you so said Illinois BIPPO. I'm going to interrupt. BIPPO sounds like a baby burp. What What, what is BIPPO? Uh, you know, and you can tell I just jump right in there since we're it's been in the news so much lately, but that's the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act. Or Oh, BIPA. yes, the first in the United States, if I recall correctly. It is, and the only one that still has a private right of action. Right, and so what? what, what a case arose recently involving insurance. Tell us about that. Yes, yeah, so Krispy Kreme Donut Corp. was um, sued, and, you know, and it's a class action case that's actually pending, um, and what's interesting here is this case is really focused more on insurance coverage and kind of less about BIPA specifically, but it's important because it really shows where the edges of kind of the issues that are arising um, with these types of cases are coming in. And so in, in December, Great American Assurance Co. or Great American um, actually filed a, a lawsuit indicating that they were not going to um, provide coverage that Krispy Kreme is not entitled to a defense under this proposed class action under their um, the policy that Krispy Kreme held from Great American. Ah, uh-huh, yeah. So what uh, what happened? Yeah, so the, the underlying case relates to a former delivery driver, um, and they're alleging that Krispy Kreme violated BIPA 
by implementing fingerprint scanning time clock system without obtaining the proper consent. So kind of the, the what we're typically seeing are the cases coming out of, of Illinois are those lack of consent, lack, lack of proper notice. And so here, what, what Great America was, was arguing is that they were arguing that the their umbrella policy that was held by Krispy Kreme co- contained a very specific exclusion that barred the coverage for lawsuits of this type. And so there are you know, kind of two main areas. And so one of the exclusions really focused that the damage here were arising from the access or disclosure of confidential and personal information. So that fell outside. The other piece of this is that it didn't relate to an advertising or, or a personal injury um, so to speak. So in those two cases, the insurer is, is alleging that those two exclusions would apply and thus not entitle Christine coverage here. Interesting. And, 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 and most of our listeners probably know that most significant companies will have a CGL policy. That's a, a basic commercial general liability policy. But they very often have writers about this. You might have to pay extra for cybersecurity. And they're well, or, uh, very often are writers that say, by the way, this doesn't cover Social Security. And, and here, I think you've said uh, Great American really was the um, issuer of the umbrella policy. Uh, am I right, Brian? Correct. And so Liberty Mutual was actually the insurer for that underlying commercial general liability policy. It was the CGL carrier. Okay. Yes. Uh, I so, see. Yeah. And so, and interestingly, Liberty Mutual denied the coverage for largely the same reasons fairly quickly. And that's when Krispy Kreme mm-hmm. turned to Great American, kind of seeking the defense under its umbrella co- policy. Under the umbrella coverage. And the answer of Great American is no, you don't have the coverage, right? Yeah. And they pointed, you know, to the insuring agreement that emphasized that the policy for the umbrella covered personal and advertising injury. And that was not the cause of the offense arising out from of Krispy Kreme's business here. It was, you know, this was actually related to their lack of consent to notices, which is not covered under that, that policy. And so the insurer also cited that since this was employee employment related, it, it really potentially made more sense that this policy, this claim should have been filed under some type of employment practice practices policy, as opposed to this umbrella policy, which did not include employment practices either. So this is a case that hasn't been settled or decided, but it, it points up the, uh, you know, if a business just assumes the umbrella cover, uh, uh, the umbrella provided by insurance covers rain, snow, and everything else, would I be right? They're wrong. Yeah, and I think that's definitely a risk that is being highlighted here. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, with the plain language of the policy and, you know, what the final determination of the court is, but believe that Great America probably has a fairly strong set of arguments here where the policies really, you know, this didn't deal with a data breach. It dealt with a lack of consent and notices, which is really more of an employment or a confidentiality issue and not a, you know, a data breach issue. It's so it's much more like an employment practices issue and also not an advertising or personal injury issue. So those kind of normal things that an umbrella typically would cover. So I, I think certainly as, you know, you look at your policies, it's always important to make sure you look at your entire insurance stack to see how the uh, policies are going to come together and where the exclusions may overlap or may not. Very interesting. Uh, Hugo, do you have a question for Brian? I do, I do. Uh, Brian, so there was a lot going on with BIPA, uh, and what do you expect 
2024 to be? Do you expect the trends to continue? Uh, do you expect a different type of trend? Uh, what are what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, so I think there's a there's probably a couple things there. I think the first is you're looking at new claims or claims that are based within the last kind of year or two, an action that occurred within the last year or two. We're seeing more and more companies are, are actually getting those proper consents and um, notices into their policies and getting those out um, in order to kind of mitigate any further damages. So I think you're going to start to see over time, you know, a trailing effect of we'll probably see a handful of new large cases, large class actions. Um, and then, you know, there's some potential for the Illinois legislature to really take another hard look as you'll recall, you know, in a couple of our stories earlier this year, the Illinois Supreme Court is, is largely almost broadened this law in terms of both what is covered, how damages are figured. And so a lot of those are really driving this kind of rush to filing that we're seeing here over this last year. Fascinating. So biometrics, we're going to hear more in 2024. Thank you, Brian. Let me let me turn to our third topic. Uh, this may be a little briefer than the others, and it's, it, it's guidance from Quebec or Quebec, if you prefer English. Uh, about based on it's the act that the the province of Quebec uh, adopted in September of 2023 uh, uh, to protect uh, personal information in the private sector. Well, Quebec's commission uh, it's called the CAI, not the CIA, uh, issues guides now uh, based on this act that's just a few months old and uh, in December, December 18th, a very interesting guide was issued, and it's about how people governed by the Act, which is a lot of businesses and organizations, have to draft simple, clear privacy notices to the public on their websites. And this is the first of what the, the Commission has promised to be a series of guidance about the Act, not binding regulations, but guidance. And if you think about it, Quebec's a very important part of Canada and an essential part of North America. So this this is really guidance about how throughout North America, at least the English speaking part, is going to have to have policies that comply with this. Well, now, what's a privacy notice? Well, it's really a a confidentiality policy about personal information that is published on a website. Uh, And the guidance says this has to be done in simple, clear terms. It it has to tell individuals if the organization collects personal information through technology, and it includes what the individual should know to make an informed decision about proceeding to do business or to uh, do any kind of activity that provides personal information to who's running the website. There are a few pointers. It's really quite an interesting guide uh, that any business should look at. First, what is a technical or technological collection of data? Well, it's, it's, it's completely broad. It means any means of collecting PI, cookies, surveillance, while one's uh, on a website, connected devices, and so on. And the organization on its website, in plain English, has to name the third parties that are providing services to those visiting the website, for example, a survey taker or a call center that may field an inquiry. And default settings have to be privacy-centric, not the other way around. And and this essentially requires an express opt-in by someone visiting a website uh, that's governed by the uh, Quebec uh, Act 
for collecting the information. And, and that essentially requires the organization to keep the personal information confidential until there's an expressed opt-in by the visitor. And the notice has to state what PI is going to be collected, including even an IP address or actions taken on a website, such as how long somebody looks at a product or a service uh, on a web catalog, as an example. Now, the guidance requires uh, an organization to train all of its personnel, outsourced or insourced, to respect Quebec's laws and guidance to achieve this required level of confidentiality. Now, like many data privacy laws, individuals will have the right to access their personal information to correct and update it and to file a complaint under the organization's stated privacy policies or ultimately with the Quebec Commission. Well, you know, the thing to think about here is what is simple and clear language? That's not a simple question, is it? The guidance discusses that language has to be jargon-free. Of course, one might debate what is jargon. It has to be easy to read, although it doesn't say whether it's by a third grader or an eighth grader or what. Uh, it has to be trust-building instead of threatening or dictatorial. And language can be both or either or some mix. It has to focus on the key elements of concern to people. And it's not going to be enough, I would say, to just post a 20-page policy and uh, ask everybody to click on, yes, I've read it. I don't think that's going to work. Any organization aiming to serve a North American market, at least the U.S. and Canadian market, is going to have to adapt to Quebec's privacy notice rules unless it says we're not open for business for Quebecois. And the guidance is an excellent checklist for any organization to write one that implements privacy and confidentiality by design. I think we should see this as a spreading of GDPR European data privacy principles into North America. After all, Quebec is a civil law, not a common law province. While both U.S. and Canada struggle with the benefits and drawbacks of a federal system, organizations in North America can look to the guidance as a means of meeting privacy demands of perhaps North America's most privacy-centric region, the important province of Quebec. And by following the Quebec Commission guidance, any organization is likely then to have a privacy notice that has principles and practices that most likely comply with most standards of provinces and states throughout the United States and Canada, as well as the federal laws that exist in Canada and the U.S. That's my take on this. Hugo, what are your thoughts? So, Joe, I'm, I'm just very curious to understand because most people do not think about Canada as much. Um, but would you understand that businesses that sell into Canada or has a website facing Canada would also have to um, comply with the Quebec law? Or do you think there's a certain exception uh, that would say not really necessary? That's question number one. And question number two, do you think it's easy for a lot to say, you know, simple, you know, a simple privacy policy, but in reality, in practice, simple really doesn't have a definition. And how would you, you know, just at a very high level, you know, suggest what, what a simple privacy policy is? 
Well, those are both great questions. The first uh, depends on the specifics of the Quebec Act. Does it apply? And, you know, if a business says, sorry, we we will take no inquiries. And if you're from Quebec, please don't visit our website. They're probably just fine. But but what a way to run a, a you know, a North American business for any significant company, I would have to observe. Uh, but short of that, uh, you know, what are you then down to? Simple and clear policies. Well, I think we've all seen some that say, well, these apply in California and uh, some other state, but not anywhere else. And, and it, it, you know, they're written by lawyers who are saying, as the law is of a given moment, it says this. So here, we set it up that way. And that gets awfully complicated. It's not clear guidance. We've seen that in California, where California law, very different kind of law from Quebec, says at least uh, people ought to be able to say to uh, California residents, do not sell or share my information. And, and you don't do that by burying it somewhere where you have to go to five different places to make that choice. So simple and clear has no clear meaning. You're, uh, we're all clear on that. But at least we have guidance now on the elements you ought to think about to try to make it simple and clear. And just as an extreme example, if you've got some 30-page privacy policy with jargon that nobody's going to ever read, it, it's not going to pass muster under the Quebec law and, frankly, doesn't pass muster with me. I, I don't think that's a fair way of dealing with people. That's not a legal comment. That's just saying how a business really wants to be viewed. If it's privacy-centric, you ought to have simple and clear ways for people to say, yes, I want to do business with you, and I'm going to give you some personal information, and I expect you to take care of it. Those are my thoughts. What do you think, Hugo? I agree. Uh, I think it is more of the companies, not just the compliance of the law, but the you know, compliance of the general culture of privacy, which certain companies will think it's a hindrance to their business, but others might see it as a value add. And we see more and more companies moving towards protecting privacy because they see it as a value add. You know, Apple's a great example where they're putting additional privacy measures in. So it's 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 a matter of how the the stakeholders in the company sees the role of privacy. And I think you're right. Uh, based on that, certain decisions will be uh, driven by the company policies and the company's approach to privacy. We will revisit this. Well, let's close the year 2023 on this note. A la santé to your health and to your privacy. And as always, I will close by reminding us all, protecting your personal privacy begins with you.